Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Yeah. Here we go. This meeting is being live streamed. <coughs> got it. It's 10.30 a.m. Unbelievably, we got away on time on the, on, on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. It's value after hours. What's happening, fellas? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the hype man is a little bit flat. Yeah, we need to get those. Oh, Jesus. Then he leaves. <laughs> well, the show must go on. Oh, we lost him already. <laughs> yeah. Better to lose him early than, I guess, you know, when he's mid saying something important. <laughs> Was it you last time who bailed out? <laughs> I think we all take turns. <laughs> with yeah, I, I disappeared a few weeks ago, didn't I? I forgot that. Hey, London, London, Ontario. Uh, what's your what's your topic today, JT? What do you got on the? Uh... Well, you know, I'm an I'm an unabashed Malbosan fanboy. Uh, all in, aren't we all? Standing hard for him. Uh, <laughs> so I will be doing uh, a little update, hitting the highlights of his latest piece that came out. That's called uh, "Turn and Face the Strange." So I appreciate him going David Bowie reference too there. Uh, so. Hi, Michael. I, <laughs> I like the name. Yeah, I got a few on deck for today. I got. Um, I kind of want to talk about. We're going to go back into China. Talk about uh, Alibaba, and uh, it's like a little bit macro. This is a little bit politics. I don't really know exactly what's going. This is on, where but... we're at our best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody's going to love this. And then uh, I got. There's a, a book, Dopamine Nation. Um, which talks about the addiction of gambling a little bit. And there are these four signs of, of like gambling addiction or why you become the environments that create gambling addiction. And I'm just going to, just going to like at the same time mention the fact that there are now as many uh, uh, brokerage accounts in the States as there are households, which is a big ramp from where they were, but I'll get to that when we get there. What are you talking about, Billy? I'm probably just going to listen to you guys. And then I'm gonna riff on this. So you did nothing to prepare, is what you're saying. <laughs> no, I did. It's just we had Toby said he's got like three topics. Yeah, he's going big today. There's a, a reasonably good chance that uh, we'll at least get through 30 minutes talking about his if we actually get into it. And I've got some stuff to riff on about yours. So let's see where it could. <laughs> where it goes <laughs> let's start with utc i want to i want to get into which the, one do you want to well, let me do one and then the other I'll, i've kind of got two topics here so i'll do uh do you want to start you with china third, or do you want yeah no you, what was your oh your third was the broker well it was account. just the households yeah the brokerage accounts in the households so let, let's start with like there's a book dopamine nation uh lemke is the last name um the the and I, I got this from a podcast that I did last week with Dr. Richard Smith, who's a who's a risk guy, and he said there are the the four uh, ways that you can induce uh, this sort of gambling addiction or, or the environments that induce a gambling addiction. Uh, you need to be you need to be able to get a reward. Um, that's that's that, that creates not value investing. <laughs> well, Out. occasionally value investing might be the might be the worst of the lot. I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, anticipating a reward is part of it too. So um, looking forward to getting the reward 
is as important as getting the reward. There you go. You also need a rich, complex environment with lots of learning opportunities. So that's definitely that's investing. And uh, if you're if you're in a if you're in an app where you've got all of the fireworks and the confetti going off, that's probably helpful too. And then uh, your reward needs to be highly randomized and best is about 50-50 because that amps up your anticipation and your, and your rewards uh, receiving as well. And it increases the, it gives you an outsized thrill when you actually get the reward. And just, I just thought this is, this is, uh, this is a factoid. I, I learned this from Vincent Delward yesterday. Um, there are currently as many brokerage accounts as there are households in the US. And this is a big step up from, from recent times. So I looked at the start of the year, there were 100 million at the start of the year brokerage accounts. There are about 122 million households in the US. In 2013, which was the last time I could get data, there were 17 million brokerage accounts. So in eight years, we've put on IVAX uh, almost 83 million plus brokerage accounts. But in, in 2001, there were 19 million. So in 2013, there were fewer than there were in 2001. It's because they got blowed up. I think that's what happened. And then there was a long time of the market sort of going backwards. Like you remember from 2000 to 2013, SPY was flat or backwards. That's no fireworks. There's not much fun there. And it's been like on a vertical ramp since about that time to today. So that's probably why there's a lot more brokerage accounts. What do you guys think? Sell everything. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is not a market call. This is just oh, okay. You know, have we, um, you know, there's a particular provider who we are always sort of dunking on, but there's a, have they sort of mindfully or have they knowingly like created this environment where you're, it's incredibly easy to sign up now and it's incredibly easy to trade. And then you've got these, they're, they're meeting all of the four criteria for, for inducing a gambling addiction in somebody. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, um, <clears throat> I want to be like, fuck them, but I don't know that that thought's right. Um, I, as it pertains to Robin Hood specifically, the idea that, they at least historically have not provided the customer service is atrocious. Um, the actual inducement of people to sign up for brokerage accounts does not bother me that much. And even like options trading, I mean, the only reason that I'm doing what I'm doing is that I came in through options trading. Um, so like, I don't know. I have uh, I have really mixed feelings. I don't like the gamification, and I don't like the idea that discount brokerages can just like basically provide absolutely no support, and then just like say, well, you know, externalities are to the rest of society, and we don't have any responsibility. Like that really bothers me. But you know, I don't know. I guess I I, I would need to know the definition of a brokerage account. You know, if like a brokerage account can have five bucks in it, then how much are we really talking about? Um, you know, my well, there's intuition... probably quite a few of those around, right? There's probably quite a few. I mean, I've I've probably got one that I've forgotten from 20 years ago. How much was yeah. the last STEMI check? It's probably about how much is in there. <laughs> no, probably less if people are trading it. But um, oh yeah, 
The average is quite yeah. high. The average is like 300. Well, the, the, the last data that I saw, which is this is the 2013 data, the, the average was like $357,000 in the account. Now, averages we need, we need are skewed. Probably better yeah, for averages are skewed. That was just yeah. all the data that I had. It's actually pretty hard to track down that data. I tried to Google around for it, couldn't pick it up. If Google can't do it, no one can. Yeah, well, that's fair. I mean, Vincent would know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I mean... Certainly, certainly would be one of the things that you could tick onto the late cycle indicators if you were so inclined. Something Toby and I were talking about before the we started today was that um, it, the the digitization of a lot of these things, these habits, these uh, activities, really hides it from us in society. Like what is happening? So, like imagine if you had to go down to the bucket shop and like they had all these people hanging around and trying to, you know, read the tape and do all this stuff or imagine uh, everyone going to the, the sports betting parlor and they're all hanging around there all day. And like, and we saw that as society, like, would we look at that and go like, maybe this isn't the best thing for us as a species to have these people doing all of this kind of, you know, basically gambling behavior, but because it's on your phone and we don't know what you're really doing on your phone at any moment. We're- that might be the healthiest thing you can do on your phone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah it's I mean, all, I think it's all yeah, swiping that's... right and and dropping coin on. But yeah, I mean, I think there is something like sort of interesting about how it's now been removed from our our view in general. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I guess like what I'm thinking about with the brokerage account specifically is like I don't know that I trust a lot of Mao numbers. I don't know that I trust a lot like monthly average users. I don't know that I trust a lot of the daily average users. Like, I think what, there's a lot of data. Not? I because I just think a lot of it's like bullshit. Whether it's like they're just making it up or, to make it look more. Well, I don't know that it's like as nefarious as fraud, but like so I um I went to college with a girl who um just lost her husband. Uh, and like, I signed on to Facebook to check that I'm a monthly active user. What does that mean? Like I literally signed on cause it's the only place that I knew how to send her a message. I sent her a message and I got off right. Like now I think when your sample size is large enough, people could push back and they could be like, well, that show up through ARPU. And you know, if you're not seeing ads, then the revenues are, you know, like it's a balancing act, but um, I just think that it doesn't tell you about the quality of engagement on a lot of, um, these platforms and then like how engagement is shifting. And I, I just, I don't know. I think there's a lot of data and I'm sure that in large numbers, uh, it's reliable, but I just sort of don't know what conclusions to draw from each individual data point. I'm sure that there are a lot. You know the the seventeen million brokerage accounts in 2013 with a three hundred average three hundred fifty thousand dollars in it. They were probably a lot more engaged and serious in using them than the one hundred million plus that you know. I, I might even have a Robinhood account because I tried to sign it sign up one day to have a look at it and see how it works, yeah. and I've never used it since. That that might count as one of those brokerage accounts. I don't know. Yeah, like I'm almost certain I do too because I wanted to see what it was like, and I guess I have my two dollar coal stock that they gave me. Thanks for that, assholes. I don't think I got a free stock. I think I probably no. signed it before that. Uh, I think they always give you a free Was stock. It? Yeah, I can't remember. Trade, right? They give you something you don't want, then you sell, so you sell it, it. And you realize how easy it is to sell it's it. It's pretty so clever. You buy something else, and all of a sudden you're a trader, and then they get to tell you that it's because they're getting you into investing. 
what what innings does that mean we're in bill someone someone wants the update I mean, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to look at what's gone on. Forget about the, the index. There's a lot of carnage in this market from the highs. So maybe, maybe we're in the, maybe we're in the 10th. Tell you one thing interesting that I saw is that I, I just randomly turned on Bloomberg late on Sunday night and I saw they had this, uh, there's a little piece on China, which I won't, I think JT should go before I come back to the China part because I don't want to do it all the way through. But um, uh, the peak of the MSCI China index was twelve. Was sorry, February seventeenth, which is about the same time that everything tech kind of peaked over here too. I don't know what that means. I just noticed. I thought it was odd. Yeah, I mean, what's what's going on in the Russell? I bet that peaked probably around a similar time. Well, ARC was February 12th. I just looked that up immediately just to sort of see. So they were about five days apart. Tesla was a little bit earlier. I guess the Russell's pretty flat this year, huh? That's interesting. Which one? The Russell 2000. I mean, it's pretty much flat since uh, February. I would have thought it was down. Did it have a big ramp and then a big fallback? Uh, not really. It's just kind of in this like consolidation pattern. Some would call it a, a, bull, a bull flag. <laughs> bull flag. Bear yeah, you're looking at, yeah you're looking at a bull flag off of uh, these March <laughs> bottoms. Breaks out to the to the upside. You could have a real nice run. Could go to three thousand on the bull flag. You want big volume when it when it breaks out, though. That kind of language is probably going to make this podcast break out. That's exactly what we need. We've also, I mean, dude, we've also got <laughs> we're we're sitting in the consolidation pattern. You're looking at a two hundred point consolidation pattern. I'm telling you, that breaks out on big volume. You got to buy it. Smash the bid. <laughs> <laughs> this is great i love this i could listen to this all day i gotta i don't know what the candlesticks are i got a line chart up here i gotta <laughs> maybe i can switch that over and get you get you some harami uh isn't harami or is that that wasn't a was that, I don't a, know if that's something you can is that an ape i don't know what it was <laughs> anyway well i want to know though did you buy a uh did you buy an nft yet no, man, I'm not going to do that shit, but I do like them. I don't have oh, the money. Man, if somebody wanna... wants to give me a money, like, you know, they have cheap ones, don't they? Like, go fund like, my yeah. NFT. I'm not going to buy collectibles. NFT. But mate, if you buy for a hundred, internet, if you buy one for a hundred bucks and it runs up to a hundred million, like that's, that's, that's how you turn into a legend. Dude, it's the way I view it is you're trying to signal something on the internet. You don't try to go out and signal something in a Hyundai. Mm, got it. You know, like yeah. that's not that's not the game I'm trying to play. Yeah, you can't flex with a two dollar NFT. That's right. No one cares. You can pick up what, like twenty followers. <laughs> <laughs> that's a day at the office for you. <laughs> Jeez, I do that in my sleep. Anyway, JT, do you want to do yours and then uh, we'll come back to the come back to the China one? I don't know if that's the least of the most. Everybody wants the China thoughts, man. Well, I don't have any thoughts. I just got stuff that I've read that I'm going to throw at you guys. Some quotes, see what you think. Yeah, it's, it's, right. people are clamoring for it. <laughs> yeah, boy. <clears throat> they came to the wrong podcast. Then probably if they want, <laughs> there's, no, there's nobody clamoring for anything on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, just clamoring. China for us and to macro. Stop. <laughs> All right, let's jump into some Albos and then and we'll keep, and then we can come back to give the people what they want. 
this this is what we want right now. Um, so his latest piece is about like sports teams and and investing and you know it, there's a ton of parallels. I think some of it is not quite always like lines up perfectly just because of some of the constraints that sports teams face. You know, like drafts and things like there's exclusivity to a player, whereas you know, if you're assuming you're not too big, like there's not much exclusivity on an, on an investment, you tend to be able to kind of buy whatever you want. Right. Um, but <clears throat> so it starts out by saying like sports teams, they, they're trying to maximize two things, winning on one hand, kind of operationally, and then also profits for the, the club. Um, and so the first thing to ask is really like what contributes to winning, especially in a changing environment. And, you know, it's like, it's the players, it's the strategies, it's the tactics that should, should lead to winning. Um, but for some reason, sports franchises are generally very slow to change. Why is that? And this whole paper is basically trying to address like, why is that? Uh, and to give an example, um, talking about three point shooting in the NBA, like the expected value of a three point shot, like basically the shooting percentage times the number of points that you get when you make one, um, is higher than, like a mid-range jumper, uh, which you shoot at a little bit higher percentage, but it's only worth two instead of three. And this expected value, uh, when the th- three-point shot first came about, like no one was shooting them. Like they just thought like S is too far away to shoot. Um, even Larry Bird was kind of like anti the three-pointer, even though he was a terrific shooter. Um, but they eventually teams realized, well, dang, if we like get better at this and take a, like have our players practice shooting threes, maybe we can like score more points that way. And it actually crossed over in 1990 when the three pointer was a higher expected value shot than the, than the mid range two pointer. And yet it wasn't until like 2014 when teams actually started taking more three pointers than min rage shots. So like, why did it take 25 years? Basically um, you could almost kind of use the, that, uh, that observation that science advanced, like Max Planck observed that, that science advances one funeral at a time. Maybe the same thing is, uh, you know, sports science advances one GM can at a time. But um, so Daryl Morey was, was kind of one of the first ones to realize that he was the GM of the Houston Rockets for a long time. Now he's the, I think the GM of the 76ers, but he observed that um, when you shoot more threes than mid range twos, that equated to like 12 more wins in a season, which is almost the equivalent of adding $30 million to your salary, uh, to your payroll. Um, so then uh, Malbosan observes that the, this three-point idea is pretty well out of the bag now, like it's been competed away. Uh, and now the next thing might actually be like offensive rebounding. So like teams have traditionally not sent everyone to crash the boards to get an extra possession and an extra shot because they're worried about getting back on defense. Um, and so there's some kind of game theory playing out there potentially right now. So then we, we sort of zoom out, like, what is it that is, imp- why is the, is change impeded? Like, why are, why are these teams so slow to change? And Malbosan puts forth uh, three different reasons, all of them uh, behavioral f- ideas basically. But the first one is loss aversion. Uh, and, you know, this is kind of Kane's classic thing about, it's, it's dangerous to fail unconventionally, right? Like it's better to just for your job prospects to uh, fail conventionally and not stand out and, and get fired. Right. Um, and like basically only the really losing teams or the winning teams that have enough goodwill to try new things with their fans are in the sweet spot enough to be able to 
to try out these these novel and like experiments. And everyone is most of the time are stuck in the middle and they can't really get out of the middle because of that. Um, number two is the status quo bias, which is where we favor doing whatever we were doing, right? Like there's an inaction and like neutral, like we observe inaction as kind of a neutral thing. Whereas if you take an action and it was wrong, then you get fired for that, right? So um, there's also the endowment effect where the GMs will hire, like they'll re-sign players for higher than they, they should have on a, on a kind of base rate if they were just to hire them, um, you know, as a, as a free agent. Uh, and then there's sunk costs. Like the, the teams are more likely to play their first round picks as opposed to later picks, even if the later ones are proving to be better players. Uh, so we're like, they, you know, we spent a first rounder on this guy. We got to play him, see what we have. Right. Um, and then the third reason is sample size. So there's lots of randomness in any given year. Um, you know, sometimes a guy will be a terrific shooter and sometimes he'll just have a terrible night and you'll lose. Right. Um, and there's the, the, the tactics that are supported by analytics don't always work, right? Like it's just, it's a statistical thing where you have an expected outcome, but you don't always get it. Uh, and so thinking about like, hitting into like when teams do the shift, right? Like, let's say they, there's a lefty up and they move everyone over to the right side of the field. And then it's a ball that gets hit. That looks like it should go right to where the shortstop is. There's nobody there. Right. So that's a base hit and you go, what are you doing? Right. Like, and those are like very painful for the fans and for the pitcher, maybe where like, God, I just got the ground ball to short and there's nobody there to make the play. Uh, but we, we don't notice as much when the guy rockets one, you know, into towards where the second baseman wouldn't have been. And the, the guy who's playing in the shift gets it and gets the out. Right. Like, so it's, it's all about playing percentages. Uh, and the last thing here is like the importance of time horizons. So the, the NBA average for the number of seasons with a team for a player is 1.9 years. So this is like pretty short turnover, right? It's an average of like two years that you're going to be with a team. A coach is two and a half years. The GM is 4.9 years. The owner is 10.9 years. So the example of this is the last year, the New York Jets were 0-13 uh, going into whatever, week 14. And the perfectly logical thing for everyone upstream of the coach would have been to lose these next three games, get the number one pick and go get Trevor Lawrence, right? Like that's who everybody wanted. Uh, instead, the coach, you know, has, because he's on a shorter time horizon is goes and they win two out of the next three and they don't get the number one pick, right? So like <laughs> you have these time mismatches. Um, so another interesting thing here is that they, they've done some really cool work on what they call draft capital. So like, you know, what is, uh, you know, the number seven pick in the first round worth relative to the number 15 pick in the second round, let's say. Uh, and so there's kind of different scoring that you can use for that to figure out like what is a particular pick worth. And, and that's sort of based on what the expected value is of a, of a mid range or a mid round second pick. Like what do they typically do produce? Um, and so like the Browns from 2017 to 2018 were in full rebuild, full tank mode, and they actually built up like almost two extra drafts worth of draft capital for the, the subsequent years by trading away their, their reasonably good players then for picks later. So basically like kind of optimizing draft capital over a different time period than just that one year. Um, and it's allowed them to rebuild in kind of a reasonable way. The Dolphins and the Jags are, have been doing something similar recently. Um, 
Last thing, maybe the most interesting, uh, Albert Pujols, right? Cardinals, first ballot, obvious Hall of Famer. 2011, he's 31 years old, and he signed the, the Angels signed him to a 10-year, $240 million contract, right? And based on like what observed, like he contributed about $40 million worth of, of team value, of, of production, of baseball production to the Angels over that time period. So it was like a $200 million hole that was created in pr- relative to what they paid. And that happens a lot. So I thought it would be kind of fun for us to throw it out there to the, the chat, as well as I'd like to get your two guys ideas on what is the possible like Albert Pujols in 2011 today? Like what's the stock that has done Hall of Famer right up until now, but maybe long in the tooth and you don't want to sign him to that 10 year and very expensive $240 million contract. Um, does the, the reason why it took, so it was like 1990, they figured out that shots, um, three points were worth more than two pointers basically because they, on average, you get a little bit more and then it takes until 2013. Is that like, who come, is that Steph Curry or someone like that comes into the league and starts, is it too early for him? No, uh, no, no. I don't think it was him, but go ahead, Jake. No, I think it was just statistically the. Well, one, the players actually started training on the three-point shot a lot more. So you had these guys that were like, they just park them in the corner, right? And they shoot. Yeah, like Kyle Korver, guys like that, that would just like sit there and shoot threes. The Suns, the Suns were like one of the first run-and-gun three-point shooting teams. Mike D'Antoni, I might be wrong on that, but that's a version of the truth I'm going to (laughs) tell. I just wonder if, I don't know if it was like, uh, you know, when... When Moneyball came out, it was. It's not that uh, the the A's were doing anything that was like the the structure had been created for the A's to do exactly what they were doing. It just seemed like nobody was really exploiting that the way that the A's were. And now everybody's sort of aware of the uh, the Moneyball phenomenon. Every single club's probably got the the data guy who can tell you, you know which position you should have. And it, maybe it just took a little while for that to bleed into basketball. It just took a little bit longer. And now they're aware. Now everything's sort of, they've got data on everything and they're, they're tracking all that stuff. Yeah. And I mean, part of it is uh, how hard is it to measure things? So like hockey is harder to measure than baseball, which has very discrete actions. Like you either made an out or you didn't like, but the, the hockey equivalent of that is like, well, were you in the right place or not? Like, so until you had player tracking, um, it's just much, it was a much harder thing to keep track of. Like base, basketball is kind of the same way too. Like it's a more fluid game. So it's harder to measure, um, you know, like what, you know, maybe like the, the effectiveness of driving in or like who's good at spacing themselves, like, you know, who finds an open spot. Like those are harder things. They're a little bit more subjective maybe than just purely like this guy got a hit or even measuring like the exit velocity of the ball in baseball, which could, you know, correlates well with, with hits. So a lot of it has to do with the sport itself that's intrinsic to it. Investing doesn't really suffer from that because there's a lot of data. There are a lot of other confounding factors too, but there's also a lot of data. There's a couple of good suggestions in the chat. One is Peloton and the other one is Tesla. Tesla's almost like uh, the, the, probably the most obvious one, but Peloton's interesting. Yeah, I, don't know. I would been... say it's kind of early for that one. Like Peloton yeah. to me seems like... Uh, coming off of their rookie contract and about to sign a big contract, but it's not sure whether 
like maybe they like they put up some good numbers, but maybe they weren't like they're expecting a really big payday. I don't know. I guess in the zooms in the same in the same same idea as Zoom, right? Yeah, I just think those companies are so young that they're not a great Pujols. Uh, Agreed. They're not a great like Pujols comp yet. What about Tesla then? Tesla's got the age, got the valuation. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I look. I think anybody that shorts a guy that shot four random civilians into space is out of their fucking minds. I'm not saying necessarily short it. Like you, you clearly you can't short that stock, but uh, like just in terms of underperforming the index for the next decade. Yeah, could work. I don't know. I don't, I have no idea where the Colt will bid it to. Um, I would be like more. I don't it's not know. Really beer, about bid dude, though. It's beer about is production a category. versus price. Like, yeah, like what beer is... as a category would make me nervous to pay up for. CPG continues to be so. Like, I don't know. People are going to hate this, but if you need one, the thing about Pujols is I think that they knew that he wasn't going to be worth the back end of the contract. I mean, that's sort of the unique thing in sports, right? Is you're, you're bringing them in for what you hope to be a, a world series or something, but there's part of me that wants to say, watch out for some, some of the narrative around luxury. Yeah, but you don't sign a 10-year contract for a guy like that when you're trying to win today, right? Like you put him on a two or five-year, 10 years, yeah. that's a big commitment. Yeah, but I think uh, if you think you can win today and you got Mike Trout, you pay him what you need to. I don't know. It's a, it's a dick measuring contest at certain stages. It's not like an investment portfolio, right? <laughs> There's also marketing, right, for those guys. Like you want to yeah. hold on to players who are well-known and, and liked and... Um, people go and buy their shirts with their names on the back. Yeah, and I think like you can bring in. I mean, I mean you don't want to pay a guy thirty million dollars to just coach up young guys, but a guy like Pujols was so well respected that I think having him in the clubhouse can go a long way. But there's some non non monetary benefits. Apple, cut a couple of suggestions here. Apple and Facebook, Terranos, good one. Yeah, I could maybe get down with Apple. I'm starting to like kind of hate Apple. Why? I don't know. They're just like some big tax on the internet. It like it's so not. Oh, the uh, the App Store. Yeah, and I mean, like, it's funny just like dealing with this super follows on Twitter. I mean, like, Apple gets thirty percent for what? Like half my Twitter activity. Seventy five percent of my Twitter activity is through the desktop. And the only reason that Apple gets to pay is because they're processing payment through the app store. And like people think Visa and MasterCard are, are taking <laughs> too much, like get out of here. Well, why do it through the app store? Isn't that Twitter's fault? Which can't they arrange it some other way? Yeah, they could, but like fuck Apple too. Like <laughs> I just, I think it's not good for, forget about me as a creator who gives a shit about me, but like the entire internet, like they're going to take 30% of digital. That's not, that's anti-innovation. That's just well, like the- a, the internet will rat around it tax. eventually. People will rat around it eventually. I get it. I'm just saying it's like it's not that's not Apple to me. Apple was an innovative customer company that put consumer need first, and now it's just like some extract extractionary moat based on software and whatnot. Like that's lame. That's what Microsoft used to be in the late 90s. I don't that's not inspiring. That's like why pay them then? Uh, because I don't want to text in green 
but you don't have to pay. Like, what? I'm not saying you. I'm saying why? Why does Twitter pay them? Do or do you pay them? How does it work? I don't know. I haven't done it. No, well, Twitter. I mean, Twitter's building this particular thing on iOS. I mean, it's not. Companies are starting to get outside of the ecosystem. I, I I understand that workarounds are like working or starting to happen. This is the whole Apple Epic Gaming thing, but like, they're still massively extractionary. And it's not in any way beneficial to society, in my opinion, other than the fact that if you're a Berkshire fanboy, it's helped you. And I happen to be one. So that's nice. But like, it's not, they're not like an innovative, exciting company. They're, they suck. You're not excited for the iPhone 13? Yeah, like the AirPods were dope. I got love for the AirPods. And I mean, I guess the watch is fine and stuff, but I don't know. I just find that. It's not an inspiring business model to me anymore. Isn't the iPad coming out in a slightly different size? <laughs> yeah, right. And like that's what it is. It's all I I use luxury tech because I want to signal that I'm a luxury human and you know <laughs> like that's what that's what it is. And like that's I'm just gonna fine. have a big diamond embedded in my forehead. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, brands matter. I guess I guess this is kind of an interesting uh you know, Mad Thunderdome and I were kind of going back and forth on the Twitter machine uh, on Saturday. And his comment was like, or the, the question that spurred us going back and forth, and I don't even think we're that far apart, but is like, is brand an ass or is brand a moat? And I had used Lululemon as an example, but I think Apple applies too on like brand enabling a company to uh, make super normal profits. But I, I think he and I would probably agree that a brand is closer to a strategic asset than a moat. But then I would get to, to go further and say, well, like, is anything a moat, right? You could argue low cost is a moat, but really execution's the moat. Um, so I think execution is really always the moat when you really cut down to the core, because anything else can sort of be like destroyed. Brands are more important when you're browsing a shopping aisle, right? And you've got limited time to get the thing that you want and you just want looking for that thing, get it off the shelf and keep going. It's different when, and this is a problem for CPG, right? That I don't know how the, I don't know what different um, avenues are being used, but is it like social? Is that how they're selling that stuff now? Uh, yeah. I, I, th- I don't know that I agree with your comment on brands though. Like Lululemon, I think, uh, traditional i think people like to wear it because it says something about them well you can go on instagram right now and you can buy lots of brands that have a very similar looking logo yeah well that's fine but then like if you're a woman and you bend over in yoga class you're probably going to show your thong which is what almost ruined lululemon for a little while their pants their pants uh they've got the better technology better technology feel it feels good right um but they had they had problems with their execution for a little while their quality got shitty and they almost lost it but then they got it back it's a good segue for china (laughs) all right let's do china um so the the thing i saw on sunday night on bloomberg there's been this um deng xiaoping who is who is is a premier of china whatever the leader of china is is called he he had this uh, philosophy that sort of to embrace capitalism with the idea that that would allow some people to get rich at a faster rate or some people to get rich first. And that was going to be okay. 
but uh, Mao Zedong had this uh, philosophy called common prosperity. And it seems now that Xi Jinping is trying to bring back this idea of common prosperity. This is a term that keeps on turning up in uh, quotations from public, from, you know, people in authority. And so um, the, the, the implication is that that's what we're seeing or the, the tech crackdown. There are other things going on in an attempt to uh, like this, that it is sort of a, an explicit move towards more socialism. I don't know if that's like the Western media's interpretation of what is actually happening or whether that's what is actually happening, but would that change your view on say the, does it make investing in tech in China or, or you know, Barber or any of those sort of stocks, does that make them less attractive? Not even one bit. Doesn't, it doesn't change anything. September 10th, I tweeted out to somebody's, somebody asked when I was talking to Roy Ma, which should come out here in the near future, uh, would love to hear you ask her about capital controls and the inability of companies to return capital to their shareholders abroad. I said, I'm taking that one even further and asking whether there's a massive off balance sheet encumbrance because the government will end up requiring donations back to society rather than shareholder profits. I think if you don't, if you haven't been considering this, you're not paying any attention to how China works. They do seem to be requiring very large philanthropic, or there have been some leaders who've come out and said, yeah, they're going to make it's a $15 fucking billion. socialist company, country, like, or communist country. Like, what did people, I, I just, I don't, it's hard. I'll tell you the hard thing for me to understand is if we're worried about Chinese tech, how have the questions around Starbucks profitability and Nike's profitability in that country not come into question? Because it's hard for me to understand how you can be worried about Chinese tech companies making too much money and not giving it back to the people, but somehow Nike making humongous margins off the people of China and extracting it and sending it all over the world. Like we don't think the Chinese government has some level of insight into Nike's margins in China. It's we less don't visible, think that, I guess. Yeah, but we don't think like the Chinese government has some level of control to say to Nike, like you're either going to make massive donations back to this country or you're not going to sell stuff here anymore. Like if, if we're going to ask these questions on Chinese tech, I think you have to ask the questions of everything in China. Well, what does that do then? I don't know. Ch- China growth is lower going forward. China profitability is lower going forward for US companies participating there. Or this is Western media and Western interpretation run amok. But I think that's part of the bet that's being offered in the market. And that's where you get to have your variant view and either make your money or lose it. Which way do you lean? What do you think? I I lean towards if I was forced to bet one way or the other, I'd be long Chinese tech. Maybe we can zoom out a little bit and think about this. Like the the point of forced to bet. The, That's what's nice. <laughs> yeah, you're not. The four, the, uh, let's think about the, if we look at it kind of on a longer timeline and the, a lot of the purpose, I think of this, this rhetoric or legislation or however it gets expressed is to actually create more stability, right? Like one thing that leads to instability is often very large discrepancies in incomes and net worth historically. Um, that's typically what has led to revolutions, 
So I think that the CCP is probably wants to get out in front of that before there's enough tension built up in haves and have nots to even that out a little bit more so that there's maybe more stability for a longer period of time. Um, now that's like a working theory. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I'm not sure you can actually like make stability disappear that easily, but uh, it does kind of like we're trying it a different way here where we're just letting a lot of, of <laughs> inequality build up. And that's, is that working out particularly well here? I'm, I'm, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure over what timeline, but uh, these are all really hard problems to solve. Like they're choosing a different way of trying to solve it. Um, I don't know. Yeah, like I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit less uh, judgmental about it, I guess. I dude, I totally agree with you. And I think this is where Charlie falls on it. And I think this is why Charlie was okay. Buying Alibaba is I think that if you believe that a lot of years of cash flow are what you're buying, having a country that you perceive to be doing things in an effective way, reduce the amount of inequality and extend the duration of, of your society and the aggregate wealth can potentially result in a good outcome. I, I have no idea how to handicap it. I was born in America. I, wrote, I voted for Ron Paul once upon a time. I find top-down economics very fucking like offensive to everything that I believe in. At the same time, assigning a high degree of confidence to the fact that they're doing the wrong thing is very, very hard for me to do. And I think that, um, you know, we'll see. But I've always thought that no matter what happens, whoever's right is going to pretend that they knew what was going to happen and they're going to say, see, I told you. And I, I think the, the range of outcomes is pretty wide here. As far as, you know, I'm not sure that you can be certain on, on whether or not this is the right thing to do or the wrong. Thing. It's, it's not so much whether it's right or wrong. It's just, it's, it's a matter of like what the implications of what they're doing are for those companies that are listed there. And, you know, it might, what, what the right thing for their society might be the completely the wrong thing for those companies. And I don't, I, I don't know how it's going to fall out either. I'm just sort of interested in following it because I find it, it's kind of an interesting experiment that you get to see in real time, in real well, time. Like, here's the thing though, the education system, like what they were doing was atrocious, what they were doing to children. Uh, which, which and then, country? China. And, yeah. And, and like how hard children were working. And then like teachers weren't teaching in class to divert children into after school for-profit tutoring. Like fuck those companies. I got no problem with them going under. Um, and, you know, I, I think... This is part of what Charlie says that he, when he says, like, I wish that I could wave a wand in certain areas of the U.S. and make things disappear. I mean, the difference is over there. They can. So I think if you are off, if you're operating from like Peter Kaufman's win, win, win strategy and part of your win is the government and you're thinking about the people, um, you know, my gut tells me that. uh you're probably not as in danger of, of the government coming after you, but over there, it's always a risk. And I think if you like anyone that invested that didn't think it was a risk, I don't think has their eyes open. Yeah. What about, uh, I mean, have what you about... tried running a small business in California? I mean, it's like, <laughs> there's, there's, we have plenty of things here that are also not that much different. I feel like, so I don't know. I just feel like we're a little bit of a glass house throwing a lot of stones. I, I think that the best 
I think that you're the thing that you said that resonates the most with me is like, I look at how our country has handled the hollowing out of the middle class. And the idea that that is a stable system to me is like just uh, kind of offensive. And I, I think, um, you know, I don't want to live in China. I understand that in China, they can take everything from you for saying something and, and it's absolute power. And I get all that. Uh, I'm not advocating for what they have, but I, I, um, I think people are way, way, way too certain they're right or wrong either way. That's, that's my only strong opinion. What about Evergrande? You guys followed that at all? As like not some really. sort of, the, you know, the, the suggestion is, and that it's the the Lehman moment. And I don't know if that's for the US or for China. I assume it's for China, but the, I've got some quotes here. UBS says it's not Lehman. Dalio says um, it's manageable. Um, Subprime is contained. It, it yeah. did sound a little as bit Dalio like that, didn't it? signs as sells everything China related and tells everybody it's manageable. Just hit cash, the bid while I sell trash. Yeah. Yeah. S&P came out with uh, default likely without support. Okay. What's that mean? Well, I guess the S&P is just like on the, well, I guess that means unless China steps in and bails them out is the default is going to, is going to occur. I don't know what the implications are. I just, and I haven't followed the story really closely. I just find that it's, it's one of those things that's making a lot of noise at the moment, probably because people are following it in the press, but it's interesting just the, again, a very wide range of outcomes. UBS saying it's not, it's not Lehman. But then S and P coming out and saying it's default likely without support, and then I guess you could add Dalio onto the end of that where he says it's manageable, in the sense that you know they are gonna they are gonna bail them out. Yeah, or or if they go down, it's not gonna take everything with it, right? Um, but I I don't know. I I have followed the situation. I have no idea how to quantify the risk. I I don't. I I think that it's hard to live through two thousand nine. Look at how financial risk went throughout the system and not at least have your, you know, ears perked up at it. Mm. Fingers of instability, they call it. Yeah. It's, it, I always get nervous with finance. Like I, I think uh, I, total return swaps, like all these derivatives, credit exposure, like I, I, it's always concerning to me. One of the short guys, Carson Block or Muddy Waters, or so, I realize it's Muddy Waters, but someone citron somebody else has been has been pointing out evergrande as an issue for more than a decade yeah it's hard to be short in this market i gotta say <laughs> yeah those timelines on the uh, extinction events are can be longer than you think yeah indeed and the other problem is that everything is a bloody lehman moment too Every single thing that occurs is someone saying this is the this is the Lehman moment for this market. There have been half a dozen over the last year or so. Yeah. Yeah, of course. This is why I don't have strong opinions on it. That's why you shouldn't read the news. I, I try not to. <laughs> well, you know, I mean except on Tuesday morning for about 15 minutes before <laughs> that, you get on. <laughs> when I open Twitter to see what's happening. I, I do I do think that Wall Street article on the Wall Street Journal article on China was interesting, but I do I have a lot of questions about why we're hearing about this now. And I don't know that I have a good answer. Ask the questions. I mean, that's mostly the question that I ask myself (laughs) is just like, why is it? Why now? Why are we hearing this now? 
Yeah. Like, and, and who's leaking it and for what purpose and what's really going on behind the scenes. Like I'm much more interested in those answers than the words on the page. Yeah. I think, yeah. It's just how I look at the news. I just, I don't, I, I don't even care about the story as much as I care about who are the sources of the story. Why are they speaking out now? What, who's trying to signal what? That's like, those are, excellent theory. That's a great question. Yeah. I often think that too. I think that's the only thing that matters because the rest is just PR. What do you make of the fact that MSCI China peaked around February? Like everything kind of peaked around the same time. Arc peaked, China peaked, Tesla peaked, all the tech companies kind of peaked. Weed stocks peaked. Was it weed stocks? Yeah, I feel bad that I interviewed, that I did my 420 episode, but I can't help when the weed holiday happens and when the market peaks, that's not on me. But yeah, I think a lot of things went like risk off. It's been interesting to watch things trade recently, man. Like, uh, yeah, I guess weed stocks, uh, February 10th. Look at that. That's interesting. If I, just I think it's kind of coming out of the, of a, you know, speculative time. Yeah. Well, that's, the, that's kind of my, any, any stock market crash that I've ever that I go back other than 87 and probably March, 2020 has been preceded by like basically a year of chopping sideways before anything happens. And then like six months of terror. hundred new account or hundred million new accounts. There's no action. This is boring now. Like it's not scratching right. that gambler itch, right? right. Stuff, stuff trading sideways or choppy is not, it's not that fun. exciting. It's not that much fun. So you lose interest and you go find something else to gamble on. You need someone to sell an NFT for $68 million and get the people excited again. I mean, the thing that's crazy yeah. though, like you're talking about, uh, I mean, just looking at the weed stuff. Go back to the lotto. <laughs> MSOS. And I don't even, I don't know if this is a split or what, but I mean, you're looking at, it's off from $120 a share to $29.34. Which was the, what was the stock? What was MSOS. The- it's like the weed ETF. Mm. I mean, it, now I don't know how real that, that trade was. Um, maybe, maybe that's like a wrong print on Bloomberg or whatever, but it's easily down from 40 to 29 easily. Um, but I, I, the screen that I'm looking at has 140 bucks a share down to 40. So I don't know. Oh, maybe I'm looking at total return. Sorry. My bad, my bad, my bad. But that was a big special dividend. No, I think I, I, I'm just, I think I'm looking at the wrong thing. Hang on. (laughs) Sorry. Oh, retail. Shut up. When when did retail go back to work? Retail had to go back to work. I saw saw an interesting thing uh, yesterday about the the number of people who work from home telecommuting. If you ask people who telecommute, they massively overestimate the number of people that worked from home at the absolute peak of the pandemic. And they also overestimate how many people are going in now. Just I, what, what do you guys, what, what would you guess for how many people were working from home at the peak of the pandemic and how, as a proportion of the working population and now as a proportion of the working population, how many people are still working from home? Throw your guesses in the, in the chat to let everybody know in a moment. Ooh. Hang on. I just want to correct the record. MSOS is off from 55 to 29. That's a reasonable that's correction. Up. And that's, that's a lot of different things, man. A lot. That's what I think is hard about looking at the index. You don't know how like, concentrated though. Like if it's if it's market cap weighted and they're big into the one thing that's come back off a lot, then that could easily explain that. 
Well, you can follow that whole sector, but I, I'm just talking about there's a lot of stocks that are off big. Bigly. Yes, a lot. Um, uh, so you want me to throw out my really dumb guess on how many people were working outside? At the peak. Or- at the peak, how many were working from home? At the peak of the pandemic and now? I don't know. I don't even know how to think through this. I feel like this is this is a trick question. I'm passing. It is a trick yeah. question. This is one of those like cognitive reflection tests. Like a bat and a ball is a dollar ten. It, it, that's right. It depends yeah. a little bit on if you're working from home. You, you, people who are working from home get 70% at the peak and down to like 40% now. Mm. And the number that I saw was 35% at the peak and it's about 13% now. So basically, uh, yeah, 39%, 18%. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good guess. 13% right now are working from home? Yeah. That's it? Yeah. Huh. So all of these discussions about like people going back to the office and all that sort of stuff. like this is really It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't affect most people. Or it's they're funny. not working at all. What was the- <laughs> Maybe a little bit of both. I don't know. They got a few jobs. They got a few brokerage accounts and a few jobs. You don't need a job if you got that brokerage account that just keeps going up. That's the. That's right. That's the new way to spread the wealth. Be- beats working. Interesting. That's quite low. So what, what, what's your what's your sense now? Like where where are we in? What what meanings are we in? You gonna say ten? I don't know what fucking inning we're in. I have no idea. I mean, it's, I don't know. I, there's a lot of stuff that's really beat up a lot. There's a lot of stuff that's not, but even the stuff that's really, that was ripping and stuff. I mean, like, I don't know what, give me, give me like a really growth name. Like Shopify. Well, Shopify, Shopify is a juggernaut. You can't stop that. But there's like, a lot of carnage, right? But there's not the index is all time highs. Yeah, well, this is. I mean, I think that the issue is a lot of people think that these businesses are going to be really good for a really long time, and I guess that I don't. Um, you know, if you think that, I don't know why it would change any time in the near future. Other I mean, they than do have it changes a good like five years worth of conditioning of like the S and P five just carrying the weight in a major way. And the S&P 495, <laughs> not really doing anything that special. So there's a lot of conditioning in that right now. I mean, there's like a balance between, you know, valuations imply uh, Malvison's con- concept of a competitive advantage period. Like the higher the valuations go, the more that you're implying the competitive advantage period has to sustain. So to me, with these valuations, uh doesn't make a whole, yeah, well, it just doesn't make a lot of sense that 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 would change tomorrow, but it also can. I mean, it's you know, it's people are fickle. But I would question I don't know why too, it would stop. So much of it is is based on advertising. So selling eyeballs is a is a huge part of the market cap. Yeah. But a lot of it, a lot of it though, is like subscription businesses. And enterprise software and stuff like that. And yeah, I don't right. know. We're probably we're probably early innings because I'm getting tired of the innings question. That's how <laughs> my contrarian answer is. Yeah. Oh yeah. Second Possible. inning. <laughs> is it is it the flows that keep the index so strong, or is it that five? 
Well, it's those five, but they get a disproportionate amount of the flows, right? Like this, I don't know how the chicken or the egg works on that thing. I'm not smart enough to figure out these questions. Is it a, what about the Fed? How much, how much of that is Fed, Fed printing? Oh, it's, it's all something, Fed. Right? It's all Fed. I mean, there's a lot of Fed printing going on there. The, the numbers are like, it's, did, did you, was it UJT has hit 100, the balance sheet, the Fed balance sheet's up 140% over the last 12 months? Uh, I think from like September of 2019, I think I saw that the Fed balance sheet's 140% higher today. I mean, that might be, that would, if, I don't know where that, you know, the, the stock market, maybe it's a slightly different, it's a slightly different beast, but would you see that in housing prices? Would you see that in real estate? Well, I think housing, you got rates plus uh, uh, there's just no supply. Like we don't have enough houses. But it was all pretty flat until sort of pre-March 2020. And it just seems to have like ramped since then. February 2020, it broke out. You got to listen to my pod with Logan. What happened? Oh, I mean, it's a humongous demographic uh, thing that he's been talking about coming through. Tw- the demographics through 2024 are just incredible. And, you know, I, th- I think that the story that people told themselves was millennials don't want to live in houses. And what they didn't realize is millennials just don't want kids till they're 30 because they're probably going to live till 85. So they're going to live in a city and romp around with each other for a little bit longer. But like women have to have kids by 35 to 40. You just like there's only so much you can do to to keep that off. And that's where the millennial age curve is coming up. So once you have babies living in a city sucks. So Some people of you may want to do it, but yeah. And then they, they realized that the window was closing and they've all tried to get through the window at the same time. Well, they're starting to get through the window. I, I think his argument would be we could have four more years. of. I, I think Logan's most bearish assessment of housing from like a healthy versus unhealthy market perspective is that prices just absolutely rip from here. In housing. And, and, yeah, and he calls that unhealthy because then you have people that are like truly priced out and left behind. Like he doesn't view that as a healthy market. I mean, house prices where I have where I have looked have been up about twenty percent year on year, which yeah. is which is a one hundred percent increase in deposit. Sorry, that's not right. It's but but it's it's a it's a it's a twenty it's a big move up. Yeah, no, it's huge. And like my mom's out in Arizona, she's uh, she she's saying that like they're offering like 10% over ask in cash and you can't get the house. Yeah. I heard that from one guy, two times a real estate agent who coaches my daughter's soccer team. So he'd had, he'd had two houses go 300 and 400 over the ask. But that's like weekend. a housing, that's like a housing. You got to look at like housing inventory days and they're, they're insanely tight. Um, you know, does it always happen? I don't know, but I mean, is that- here's, this is your inflation you've been looking for, right? Like, because it's the same house that it was two years ago. It's the same roof over your head, but now you pay 20%, 100% more in property taxes. You pay 100% yeah. more in, because I have to insure a million dollars for this piece of property that was $400,000 five years ago, right? Like it's, there's no actual gain there for you. <laughs> if you're going to have to go buy another house, that's just as expensive. Yeah. I think the real question then becomes, you know, can, does this create an incentive for builders to build more? Hope so. Yeah. I don't know. That's, you would think capitalism might solve it, but if they don't, um, we could live in a perpetual shortage for a while.
on that note, that's time, fellas. Thanks, everybody. Cheers, we'll, uh, everyone. See you next week.